you would please take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 8. If I asked you what the most important thing in life is right now, you would be able to give me a myriad of answers. For everybody, it would be a little bit different. We'd find some common ground, something to do with family, something to do with the importance of friends. We've got to throw Jesus in there for good Christians, right? That kind of thing. Feel obligated or even guilty. He's not the first thing that comes to mind. But I stand in a unique position because I can go ahead and tell you you're wrong about all those things. Except Jesus, of course. The most important thing in every one of our lives is glorification. It's the most important thing. It is the time where everything that we struggle with and are frustrated about and are at our wits end asking the question, why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? Why is this happening to me? All those questions are answered in that moment of glorification. All those wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Or God, are you doing anything? Sometimes we feel like that God just sits in a lazy boy and twiddles his thumbs and could care less about what's going on with me right now. Of course, that's what the enemy would want us to think. But we know that that's not true. Why? Because we've been guaranteed a day. See, when Jesus died, he didn't just die to save us or to redeem us. He's got more. In fact, the Bible uses such phrases as this way, to the uttermost. That there's a salvation out ahead. That there's an inheritance to be had. What we're going to see today is there's a better country to live in than what we could settle for here. Now here's the thing. God wants for every single one of our lives maximum glorification. There's not one person in here that he doesn't want as his child to grow and to grow and to grow. My son is taking swimming lessons right now. And so we'll go to the pool on Monday nights. We got on our swim trunks. We're in this freezing cold water. And I can hear his teeth chattering. And he's clinging on to me. We're four feet deep and he's scared that he's going to drown. He's scared to death that he's going to go down. I said, buddy, I got you. I'm not going to let you go. Not, you're okay. I'm trying to reassure and encourage constantly, constantly, constantly. Then we show up one day and they got a noodle. Everybody know what a noodle is? Swim noodle? I said, here, let's put this under your arms here. No, 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 no. Look, watch this. You know, look, I'm going to hold the noodle right here. Paddle, paddle, paddle. Swim, swim, swim. And my greatest desire in that moment is, God, please, let him get this. Let him, let him move forward of his own accord, even though he's got help with the noodle. I just want to see some sort of progress. And then after the second and third swim lesson, you're going, God, I need this progress here. Right? You've been there. You know. I need... You know, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the honest heart's prayer. God, give me something. Right? If you've ever cried out for it, you're just looking. The next step of maturity. Please. Please, God. Finally comes the day last week. Got a hold of the new buddy. It's good. 
And I let go. He turns around. He looks at me and I go, you're doing it all on your own. And fear was gone. What kept him from maturity was fear. Fear. And what's amazing is, is when you get into Romans 8 and you're reading along, wow, glorification sounds real good. God's got all these great things for me. Then all of a sudden you hit a verse. Everybody look at it with me. Where it says here, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Ah, that sounds good. I got a witness with me saying I'm a child of God. And I'm a child of God, so that's real good. Verse 17, and if children, yeah. Heirs also. Hmm. That sounds even better, doesn't it? It's one thing to be a child. It's another thing to be an heir. I get to be a child and an heir? That's good. Heirs of God? Excellent. That's good. And fellow heirs with Christ? Oh, yeah. So what Jesus is getting, I'm getting. That sounds real good. If, okay, what? If, hold on. Is that a typo? Do we need to get it in the Greek and make sure that's the right word? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. See, if you're a child of God, if you're born again, if you've heard the gospel and you've believed, you're saved. You're justified. And you are automatically an heir of God at that moment. But God wants to take each one of his children into deeper waters. And God is looking for the opportunity where he can see that growth. And growth comes in one way only. And that is faith. Am I willing to believe what God has said beyond everything that I see around me? That's the key. If you want to know what the key is to maturing in your faith, it is believing what God has said. That's it. It doesn't get any more glamorous or fireworks or crazy like that. And everything that would happen to enhance our experience flows out of that. And so Paul knows, I've brought up suffering. This is going to create some anxiety in people. To stand for your faith and to be mocked and ridiculed as a response, that might cause some people to clock out early. And Paul doesn't want that. So again, he gives you some reasons why you shouldn't bail on Jesus. Number one, look at everything around you. Can you not see that it's striving for better things? It's because it's waiting for a day, and that day is called the adoption of sons. We call it the rapture. It's waiting for a time when we'll be caught up to be with him forever, never to hurt or worry ever again, and wherever the Lamb goes, we will follow him. That's what we're waiting for. And have you not noticed that you groan yourself? Don't say you don't. We open your medicine cabinet and see bear and Tylenol and Aleve and Icy Hot. We see it because we're groaning. Don't tell me you don't use Icy Hot. In fact, you put on two layers if you want to really see something happen. Okay? But there's something in us that groans out. Recognizing this can't be the end because this is terrible. Paul says it's not. You're actually going to find yourself in a position 
where when you're so believing God, the world takes notice and they retaliate. Why? Because they've been carefully threaded by the father of lies to live in lies. And when you stand as truth, you bring conviction upon the world. Not that you were trying to poke the bear. The bear just got poked because you said, I don't agree with that. One of the greatest pictures I've ever seen in my life. And it's a small one. I wish I still had it. I've got it archived somewhere in Google Photos. Who knows where that cesspool is, but anyway. But it's this incredible picture of all of these people in Nazi Germany when Hitler is rising to power. And they've all got the Heil Hitler salute out there. And the entire picture is like an orangish-red color. Then they've got a clear circle of black and white on one guy, and there's one guy back there. And at the bottom of the picture, it says in huge capital letters, resist. That makes me think of this world system. I'm going to say this, and it might bother you, but it's true if you really think about it. This world system is not any better than Nazi Germany. It's not. We've murdered enough infants in the womb. How could they possibly compare? We live in a horrible society. And this society is like a ravenous dog that is ready to turn and eat us and rip us to shreds. And so what, we all polish our bow staff skills and go to war? No, that's not what happens. We hold fast to the truth and we let the Lord do the fighting. We remain steadfast in this. And so when you hit those moments when you don't know how to continue on because the persecution is intense and you've maybe lost sight of the glorification that God wants you to have for a second, He says, don't worry about praying. Holy Spirit will show you how to pray. Look at verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. It's not anything weird for a believer in Christ to be weak. That's the best place for us to be. The best place for us to be is with broken hands held up saying, I can't. And that's when God steps in and goes, now it's time to get to work. Now it's time for me to step in and do something. Now we can move forward. But it's a laying down of self. So when I'm in my weakness and I don't know how to pray, what it says here, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays perfectly for you. I don't know about you, but I feel a lot less helpless knowing that that's true. Then we have verse 28, which 28, 29, and 30 have been the focus of these past six weeks. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, but there's a condition to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then Paul wants to prove it to you. For, here's your causal conjunction. It's going to pick up and explain this for you. And here's what he's doing. He's giving you an example of past saints and their lives and how that's unfolded. And if you see how God treated them in their track record, know this, it's the same God who also loves and ministers to you. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what end? To go to heaven when you die? No, 
to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. He's got a calling on your life. And to those whom he called, he also justified. Justified by faith? No, justified by works. It's the idea of the fact that your faith is now active and beneficial and profitable. And what is the outcome of that for these Old Testament saints? And these whom he justified, notice all these are past tense, he also glorified, and that is the subject of today. So let me give you a quick rundown of what we see for this Romans 28 section of these six buzzwords, just to make sure that we've got them. Notice, foreknew, what is that? To know by experience previously. Very important word is used there, gnosko. You need to understand that. And if you download literal word, it's a good app on your phone and you use it, you hold your finger on those words for no, it'll tell you which ones are gnosko. And why is it important? Because it has the idea of having an experience or an intimacy involved or an acquaintance that you can give a firsthand testimony about. So when we talk about foreknew, it is the idea of to experience, have an experience with somebody previously or some, one, one translator translated it this way, a pre-acquaintance with someone. Was God pre-acquainted with the Old Testament saints? Yes, he was. How about this? Predestined. To what end? To be conformed to Christ. Notice that has to do with your sanctification, not your justification. The firstborn. Why would he be the firstborn? Because Jesus Christ is preeminent. That's not a creation idea. That is the idea of a rank. The idea that he is number one and there is no other. And when somebody is living their lives, somebody in the Old Testament was following God and living their life, and that was the end that God had predestined them to, guess what happens? Christ is exalted. And when Christ is exalted, everybody catches the fever. Everybody with me? I don't know about you, but I look for the fever. Cowbell can't cure it. Anybody? Okay, five of you. Good thing. You guys are more sanctified minds. It's good. Called. Called to what? To fulfill God's purpose for your life. Every single person in here has a calling to fulfill. It may not be glamorous. Guess what? It doesn't have to. Because glamour is not what you're called to in order to meet that calling. Faithfulness is. Faithfulness is the way that you meet the calling. Justified. How? By works. In other words, your faith is vindicated. The idea is that it's energizing and it's beneficial. And it's always beneficial in a community context. You know what that tells me? The church. It's beneficial for your brothers and sisters. And the last one, glorified. What is that? The better resurrection out ahead. Every single believer in Christ is going to be in glory. Nothing can stop that. But God, being gracious beyond my comprehension, wants more and more and more for us. And the scriptures testify that. And he tells us how to get it. Let's deal with this word, glorified. There are two major meanings that are given in the lexicon. And again, these people that have thoroughly studied this stuff always show the full cards of the meaning that comes out of this. And it's important that we see, number one, to influence one's opinion about another. So as enhance the latter's reputation, such as praising or honor, you're glorifying God. What are you trying to do when you glorify God? That's not talking about the culmination of your salvation. That's talking about to make much of him in the presence of other people. That's the idea. But the second one is what pertains here. To cause to have splendid greatness, to clothe in splendor or glorify, and this is very interesting, of the glory that comes in the next life. That's our goal. 
That's what we look forward to. That's the end for us. That is the culmination of all things. Now, let me give you a, a quote here that might help clarify some of this if you're having difficulty working through it. This is by a guy named Joseph Dillo. He's written a really great book that you need to get a hold of if you can. It's called Final Destiny. It'll cost you about $45, but it's also about this thick. And it's worth looking at because of everything that is in it. It will greatly enhance your Bible study and give you a lot of food to think about and to meditate upon. Paul tells us there are two kinds of inheritance. All believers are heirs of God. That's the birth inheritance, being born again. And for those who set their life goal to be perseverance in suffering with Christ, even if they sometimes fail, they can become co-heirs with Christ, which is a reward inheritance. To be a co-heir with Christ is what Paul elsewhere calls inheriting the kingdom. That's what we're talking about. Now, if this sounds strange to you, it's also all throughout the Old Testament. The people of God are Israel, and they will be part of his chosen people. However, he encourages faithfulness. I've got you. Enter the land. Mm, I don't know. There's giants there, and even though the fruit is looking quite succulent, I don't think we can take them. And so what happens? He disciplines them, and they wander for 40 years. They missed the inheritance. Next generation demonstrates wisdom and doesn't make the same mistake. What was the wisdom they learned? Trust God. Trust God. Trust his word. He said you can take the land, you can take the land. So believe him and move forward. Everybody got that? There's an Old Testament example. Now here's a question. How can we see examples of this taking place? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I love Hebrews. I hated, I hated Hebrews at one time. At one time, I was like, I wonder if I could just take an X-Acto knife and just get these pages out of my Bible and we just move on with life. Yeah, that's where I was. So, now I love it. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me give you a brief summary of what the entire book is about, what the immediate context is about, and then we'll move forward. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. They came from a Jewish heritage, but they were believers in Christ. And they started to notice that when I'm a believer in Christ, people don't like me as much. And so I'm starting to suffer persecution. I'm starting to get ridicule. I've been blacklisted from the labor unions. People are coming and taking away my stuff. People are breaking into my car. It's not going well. My kids are getting made fun of and beat up at school, all because I'm a Christian. So I'm wondering, how can I make this a little bit easier on me? I know. I'll just go back to the previous belief system that I have, which for these people was Judaism, and I'll begin participating in the sacrifices and observing all the special days and all this stuff, and that way it'll be much smoother in my earthly life. And the writer of Hebrews writes them, and he says, anything that you go back to, was all pointing to Jesus to begin with. So why you'd want to go backwards and settle for less makes no sense. And understand this. If you fall away from Christ, and instead you are deciding to cultivate great sin by participating in your previous belief system, because you've essentially denied your Savior is what's happened. He will discipline you. He will paddle you. And he has no problem. But if you're looking for an incentive 
of why you should stick with Christ during this hard time in your earthly existence, it's because he wants to reward you lavishly for it and you will be paid back for your faithfulness. That's what all of Hebrews is about. That Jesus is greater than anything else you could settle for. for don't, don't settle for anything less but him. If you hold fast to him, he will heap it upon you in flying colors. So we're going to start in verse 32. We just got done telling them how dangerous it is to reject Jesus. Because there is no sacrifice for willful sin. And you look at Leviticus 15, you find that's true. I'm sorry, Numbers 15, you find that's true. Verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. After being enlightened, what is that? That's being born again. Now the Holy Spirit resides in them and has enlightened them to the nature of the truth. It says here, you endured a great conflict in suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. So notice, when you were born again, persecution is something that you dealt with up front anyway. It's something that you had already coming your way. But look what he says after that. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. In other words, you noticed that your brothers and sisters in Christ were being raked over the coals as well, and you came to their aid. You were willing to have your reputation tarnished and become guilty by association because you wanted to minister in love and care and build them up. When you first became a Christian, this stuff was going on. He says here, verse 34, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Let me ask you, what do you hold dear in your home? What is that thing that you won't let anybody touch up on a high shelf? You regularly polish it with a diaper and... It just gleams like gold. What is that thing? What is that thing in your home? As soon as a kid gets near it, you can't. You don't even have words. You're just like, ah! Don't! Right? What is that thing? Imagine somebody coming in and taking that from you because you're a believer in Christ. And you didn't, ah! Them? No? What's it say here? You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Go ahead and take it. It's just stuff. It doesn't matter. I'm not willing to pay for a casket big enough for them to bury me with it anyway. It's just going to rot and rust. Everything I have valuable is already in safekeeping with the Lord. So why do I care? You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. Knowing. Ah, anybody want to guess what this word knowing is? Gnosko having a first-hand experience with this. There's something that you know on an intimate basis here. What is that? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession. You know what that speaks of? Quality. Anything that you could possibly earn or achieve or pay for in this life, guess what? It's of inferior quality compared to what Christ already has stored up for you. You have a better possession and a lasting one. It doesn't end. It's not going to end up in the dump somewhere. I mean, this isn't very encouraging, but when you go home and pull up in the driveway, look at all of it. One day, all this is going to end up in the dump. That make you feel good? No. I hope it creates a longing that there's something more. That's what it should. Nothing lasts. 
but God and his word. Nothing. That's what they're getting at. He says here, verse 36, for you have need of, what's the word, church? No, you have need of endurance. 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 Stick with itness. Stay on task. Singularly focused. Jesus is all that matters. God plus nothing. That's it. Singularly focus. My crosshairs are unclouded and unmoved. Jesus is the target. You have need of endurance. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, uh uh-oh, there's your calling. Those that have been called, called to what? God's will for your life. Never apart from the word of God, but unique to you because of how God has fashioned you for those moments. When you have done the will of God, you may, here it is, receive what is promised. In other words, because you were faithful, you get the reward for your obedience. Verse 37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Everybody see the anticipation of Jesus' return? He who is coming will come. We call that the rapture when we're caught up to meet him in the air. And will not delay. Ah, but here's the key. And if you remember back, this is how we started this entire Christ Life series. Romans chapter 1, dealing specifically with verse 17, because that's what the book is about. Here's what it says. But my righteous one shall, what? Live by faith. Notice it doesn't say be justified or saved by faith. That's not what it's talking about. How do you live as a believer? Do you live? Trusting the word of God. That's what it's getting at. Is your life a life of faith? That's what matters. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And watch this, because it's a warning. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If you fall away from the faith, you're not pleasing to God. If you take a step back, I don't even want to call it Christianity, really. If you take a step back from Jesus Christ, your Lord, you enter into a realm where God is not pleased with you. Let's not be shocked that Jesus, excuse me, God, being a good father, spanks his children. Every good father does. Every good father disciplines and corrects his wayward child. And I don't know of one father in this room that would say, you know what, my kid's so disobedient, I, could, I couldn't be happier. I love it when they just run amok. We go into Walmart, it's a banshee like his hair's on fire. And you know what, it brings a smile to my face. I'm walking through Walmart going, that ain't my kid. Because even when it's other people's kids, I'm not pleased with that. I'm especially not pleased when it's my child. And when it is my child, every kid has their instances. They are not living by faith. They are not believing that what I've told them is true and that the consequences are there for their actions. Guys, it's no different with our Father in heaven. 
If we want to live a life that's not according to faith, you will find yourself shrinking back when it matters most. When God is looking for you to mature into that next step and we forsake the word of God and we're more concerned with what Whoopi Goldberg's got to tell us about the future than anything else in our lives. That is a hellish existence, understand that. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And so if that's where we're at, and we want to at least be honest with ourselves, you don't have to look over and go, that's totally me. You don't have to do that. But be honest with yourself about where you are because the text is making it clear. If we shrink back, God's soul has no pleasure in us. Look what it says, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to, what's the word? Destruction. Cultivating a garbage ending for ourselves when Jesus Christ hands us the keys to the kingdom. Man, that's rough. Look what it says. But of those who have what? Faith you want to do yourself a huge favor, take your pen and right next to that word, write K-E-Y. There's the key. The key is faith. The key is faith. And he keeps bringing it up. Those who have faith to the persevering, or sorry, forgive me, to the preserving of the soul, your life, how you steward your existence now. And we've gone over soul, spirit, and body a lot. You can... Listen to that in the past. There's also some handouts out in the Welcome Center right across from it on that little table about that to help that. We're not of those who shrink away to destruction. We're not those that even though we have it all are asking for less. No, move on in faith. And if you move on in faith, you will endure because there's no other way to endure. You'll never be strong enough. You'll never be perfect enough. You'll never be well enough. It'll never happen. And dare I say it, you'll never be younger. Well, I'm too old for that. You're not. Don't tell me that God doesn't still have stuff for us to do. He's got plenty for me to do in my old age. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now he's going to define for us faith. If you want to know what faith is, here's what it is. He spells it out clearly. Now faith is the assurance of things Hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And he's going to give you a reason why that's important, why we would want to live in that way. And then he's going to give you some examples. Watch this. Verse 2. For by it men of old gained approval. Everybody see your number next to gained approval. Everybody see that? Everybody see it? Yes? Notice it says in your marginal note, obtained a good Testimony. Now they go hand in hand is the idea. Why? Because the person that is approving the testimony that they've brought to the table is God. Only he is the judge. But the idea is when you live by faith, it says something to the Lord. And when it says something to the Lord, the Lord's got something to say back to you. And it's whether he is approved, whether or not you've been pleasing to him, and the way that you've lived your life on earth by relying on Christ and believing his word, or if you were forsaking the Bible and settling for much less things because you were the God of your own existence. So, witness, testimony, 
Approval, they could be used interchangeably here, but let me tell you why this is important. Because when we get down into verse 4, we're going to find the same Greek word twice. When we get into chapter, sorry, verse 5, we're going to find it again, and then you're going to find it at the end. We're not covering verse 39, but you're going to find this again in verse 39. It's the same word over and over and over. It's because the author of Hebrews is trying to nail something into our head about what does it look like for us to stand before the Lord. Or let me say it this way, what does God have to say about you? If you were to ask God's opinion, God, how am I doing? What would he say? What would he say? And then we all get into Eeyore theology, don't we? Well, I could do better. When are we going to stop trying to do better and start believing the Lord? In every area, not just Sunday, not just when I can handle it, not just when I can control it, not just the passages that I like, God's word is not a buffet. You have to feed on Leviticus just like you do Romans. He didn't inspire one part more than another. When are we going to stop having the regret of, I could do more, instead throw our hands up and surrender and say, Jesus, do it all. That's when a difference starts being made. That's when you start living by faith. Why? Because you don't have anything else to trust in. Nothing. Nothing. That's the point that he wants to get us to. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds, that should be translated ages, were prepared by the word of God. No one was here to witness that. Even Chuck doesn't go back that far. I love you, Chuck, but Tom's not here. Even Tom doesn't go back that far. But as far as the creation, the origin of everything that God spoke and there was nothing and it all came into being, you have to take that by faith. You weren't there to witness it. So you either believe it or you don't. Now, I'm interested in all the alternatives that have come up in our world. But all of them seem to have a flaw of no one can ever tell me how whatever they started with got there. Only the Bible starts with God did it. He caused it, and oh, by the way, no one caused him. He always is. So by faith, you have to take creation, and that's where the author starts. By faith, we understand that the ages were prepared by the word of God. Why? So that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. It wasn't just a strewn mess of Lego blocks that God decided to fashion into a fire truck. It didn't happen that way. It was not God spoke and it became. Matter is not God. God is over matter. Verse 4, look at this. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the, here's that word above, gained approval, the testimony, exact same word, that he was righteous. Now here's what's interesting. Notice that it wasn't because Abel offered the sacrifice that he did that he was declared righteous as justified like that. That's not a faith situation. That's a works situation. Notice this is not talking about positional righteousness. This is talking about practical righteousness. How do you live? 
And living by faith is as simple as at some point, obviously, God came to them and said, you will need to do sacrifices for sins. We don't have it recorded in the scripture, but I have a pretty good idea that at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, he set up them with a flaming sword that turned every which way. Everybody remember that? Anybody know what the top of the ark is? The lid, how it's fashioned? Two cherubim with their wings touching right there. And the priest would come in and he would offer the atonement in between those two wings. I'm pretty sure that that's probably where they came to offer this sacrifice. And even though cattle were not cursed, livestock were not cursed in this situation, he came and he brought a blood offering. But Cain decided to take the ground that was cursed and bring an offering there, watermelons or whatever, I don't know what it was. God was not pleased. He was not happy. So notice, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony, what God's got to say about him, that he was righteous. Righteous how? In his actions. God testifying about his gifts. In other words, the declaration that God made, was it acceptable or was it not acceptable? Notice this, and through faith, there it is again, though he is dead, what does it say? He still what? He still speaks. In other words, he's got a living testimony even though he's passed off this earth. He was a great saint at the beginning. And even though his brother killed him, there was still a witness to be had. There was still a message that his life had to say. Trust God at all costs. Did he do that to provoke his brother? No, you can't help the jealousy that crept up in Cain. Didn't change the fact that Abel was faithful at all costs. How about verse 5? By faith, Enoch. See, we like Enoch because he's mysterious and weird. He was here, and then he was gone, and he's the greatest magician that's ever lived. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Why? For he obtained the witness. There's that same word again, testimony, witness. That before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, here's the interesting thing. He had that witness. Who said that about him? God. God's assessment of his life was, I'm so pleased with him, he doesn't have to die. Come up here. You know what that's also called? That's a rapture. Rapture is not just in the New Testament. Notice it says here, verse 6, he's going to elaborate on this. And without faith, it is market. If you got a red pen, break that bad boy out and mark this. It is impossible to please him. All I want is to be pleasing to God. Great, it's not hard. Just know his word and believe it. Just know his word and act accordingly. That's all that needs to take place. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. In other words, believe in his existence. Now you say, wait a second. If he's talking about these Old Testament saints and if it's being addressed to Christians right now, why would these people not believe that he is? Is it because they're lost? No, it's because we have a tendency to live Monday through Saturday apart from his existence. And on Sunday, we've decided, oh yeah, God's there. Been there the whole time. I don't know why you put him in the trunk. He's been there the whole time. He's been there the whole time. So how do we live pleasing to God? Number one, he's there. He exists. He always is. But number two, look what it says there. It's not just that he is, but that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
There's a good application. Are you seeking him today? Were you seeking him before you came this morning? Were you seeking him yesterday? Or were you seeking you? I'm just on a journey of self-discovery. So I'm going to lay half naked with warm rocks at different places on my body and experience the breeze of the ocean surrounded by tiki torches. We are some freaking weird people, man. What is going on? I'll tell you this. You may think I'm crazy for it, but fine. Know your Bible. It's demonically induced. Those people have bought into a lie. Just trying to reach a deeper consciousness. Well, stop it and pay your bills and live like a person and trust in God. Weird. Weird. Weird people. They need Christ. Notice he's a rewarder of those who seek him. He is the goal. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Stop. Let me ask you this question. As a believer in Christ, does the Bible warn you right now about things that are not yet seen that are coming? Absolutely. Pete's made his whole living off of it in this class that he teaches in Sunday school. Arnold Fruchtenbaum can retire on how many books we bought from that guy. But think about it. The Bible tells us clearly about the end of the world. It's not too hard for you. You just need to seek Him in it. And the Holy Spirit will teach you about this end. So notice, because Noah is in an interesting position. This world's terrible. God has given a moral judgment upon it, and I'm going to take it out. You've got 120 years till it starts. Start building an ark. Well, that's a weird way to go. What did God tell him to do? Build an ark, yes. What should Noah do? Build an ark. It's pretty simple, isn't it? The world's going to make fun. Ugh. Be away from Anybody ever heard Bill Cosby stand up about the ark? Noah, what are you building? An ark. Why is it in my driveway? Because <laughs> it's so big. You know? How long can you tread water, my friend? It's funny, but it's serious. Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence. In other words, there was a healthy fear and respect because of Yahweh giving him this insight. Look what it says. Prepared an ark for the salvation. That's not go to heaven when you die. That is physical rescue of his household. Now watch this, because here's an interesting phrase. Think about this. By which he condemned the world. Everybody see that? By trusting God, and building this vehicle of which God would use to preserve him and bring him safely through the other side of absolute and total destruction, chaos, and judgment of the outpouring of God's wrath to kill every living thing on the face of the earth. By doing that, Noah draws his line in the sand and says our family will not participate in that world system. We will not bow down to that God that you're trying to praise. We're not going to do it. And he condemns the world by it. That's an interesting life. Notice, and he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to what? Faith. Why? Because he lived by faith. Therefore, he's going to be rewarded for that choice. How about the next one? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, go to a place I'm going to show you, right? He obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. That's a reward. 
Notice it says here, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. It's not on my GPS, God, I don't know. Move forward in faith. I'll show you when you get there. Go. Look what he says here. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. God's already told you all this land is going to be yours. Isn't it interesting he didn't try to mount up an army and take it? Very interesting. God promised it to him. He said, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs, there's that inheritance reward language again, of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, he was operating in faith about what God promised him. And oh yeah, by the way, God promised him much more than just some real estate over the Middle East. His goal was set bigger than that. There's something greater coming. There's something greater coming that this world is not going to be able to contain in the way that it is. And I'm going to live my life looking forward unto that end. This world has nothing to get me in comparison to that. Look how he moves forward. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah, all the ladies perk up, right? Even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. What's that mean? She was old. 91, but God told me I was going to have a child last year. I believe him. God moves. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. In other words, she believed God's word. Verse 12, therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead. Thanks for being soft on that one at that. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. God promised it. They believed it. He did it. They lived by faith. They believed trusting what God had told them. Now, 13 through 16 is where we're going to end. And this is a very interesting summary to get our minds around it. Because he gives you all these examples and then he wants to stop and he wants to make a point. Remember, he's not writing this because he's trying to give them a history lesson about the Old Testament. He's writing them because he wants to show this is how God worked with people in the past. This is how people responded to God in the past. And guess what? The formula hasn't changed. All these died in faith. And you might want to, he's making a general statement there, but you know, except Enoch. Enoch was taken up. All these died in faith. Without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know what? That's a really good lick your finger and hold it to the wind type of idea. Do you feel like a stranger in this world? Are you quite at home in your surroundings? Is there something internally that is just completely unsettled with being here? If that's the case, that's the longing for something better. It's something you can totally identify here. It's the Spirit crying out in you, there's more. There's more. And it's greater. And don't settle for these hot dogs when you could be having chicken cordon bleu. Don't do it. Don't make the sacrifice. I know you're hungry now. Wait. Wait. So notice, they were strangers, they were exiles on the earth. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. We would call this the New Jerusalem. 
Everybody see the word seeking there? Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They have an intense, insatiable desire. It's almost like they're clawing after it. It says here, and indeed, if they've been thinking of that country from which they went out, in other words, whenever God appeared to Abraham and said, hey, get up and go to a land I'm going to show you. And so he gets up out of this place, and it is Babylon right now, or Iraq right now, but we'd understand most traditionally in the Bible times is Babylon. He gets up and he travels over this place. If, if all that he was thinking about was just simply a plot of land somewhere that he could have traveled to, that would have been different because he could have picked up all of his stuff and went. If that's what he's longing for and desiring for, and it's just something that's made, and it's just stuff, then he could have went for that. But no, it was greater than that. They would have had the opportunity to return, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. The word desire here means the idea of stretching out your hand in order to grasp at something because you've got to have it. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Do you long for heaven? Do you long to stand in the presence of God? Do you long to stand in the presence of God for issues that are beyond just what you want? Does it need to be because I won't hurt anymore, because he'll cure all my ills, because all the pain will go away? Or does it need to be the simple fact that he's God and being in his presence is awesome? Do we worship him for who he is? Or because he's some sort of theistic sugar daddy that just gives us what we want? Is that really what it boils down to? Is that the culmination of the Christian life? That's where my joy is found, yeah. Called health, wealth, and prosperity. That ain't here. That's another church. That's not the God of the Bible. No. These desire a better country. You don't live here. I hope you know that. You don't live here. Do you understand that? This is not where you are. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The place is already there. It's already been reserved. It was already taken care of on the cross. The mission has already been paid. Eternal life has already been guaranteed. He raised his son. Guess what? He did that to show you that he'd raise you too. It's more. It's more than what we often settle for because we're so overwhelmed with stuff. So if we desire a better country, and you have to ask yourself the question, is that my desire? Is that really? I mean, nobody needs to know, but you, God already knows. But that's a conclusion I got to come to. What is my heart's desire in life right now? Is it for this life right now? Or is it for the life to come? Only you can answer that. Now, I love this response. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And watch this. Therefore, because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed of you. Why? Because you desire the maturity that he so desperately wants you to have. And there is no greater goal for the Christian. He desires for his son to be fully formed in us. And when we say, God, all I want is for your son to be fully formed in me, that you would continue to fashion me, even in the hard times when I feel like giving up. 
I just throw myself helplessly on your word and I desire for you to mold me. I don't understand it now, but you will show me all things to come. That's all I desire. It says that God is not ashamed of you at all. No shame. I know what you're thinking. Are there Christians that God might be ashamed of? That's a hard reality to swallow. When God has taken the time to make Himself personally known, graciously extended His hand to an undeserving and sinning people who just want what they want and everybody else get out of my way, he who dies with the most toys wins. Kind of attitude. So He takes the time to make Himself known. He takes the time to give His Word. He takes the time to show how He works, who He is, what He expects, what His heart's desire is. He constantly cries out through the nation of Israel to recognize that He is different from everything else we settle for. And then the sin problem is so helpless that He even gives of His own Son to make sure that there is no barrier standing between us anymore. And He extends His hand all day long to the disobedient people of Israel. And He makes salvation available to the world. And He constantly calls and calls us to go out and be ministers of reconciliation to bring people into the family by telling them that to believe in Christ is to have eternal life because he has died for your sins and it is perfect and he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and people who come to faith in Christ are either refusing of learning refusing of obeying but the biggest problem is refusing of trusting you can imagine that there's disappointment on behalf of the Father. Does he love? Yes. If he didn't love, he wouldn't be disappointed. He'd be like, whatever. We're not illegitimate children. He purposely gave his son to redeem us. Well, I'm in the door. It's all that matters. No, it doesn't. There's more. There's more. There's more. And there's only the grace and the love of an amazing father like that that wants to give, that is trying to convince our hearts that what we often settle for in Christianity because we think we voted for a party or we held a certain construct of morals or we got accepted by a group of people somehow makes us right Christians. If we have not believed his word and we're not living in light of what he has said, we are not right Christians. We are wrong Christians. There is no replacement for his word. God is not ashamed for those who are believing this, who are looking for more than this life has to offer. God's not ashamed. God's excited about that. Thank you. When the world was trying to sell you everything else, you trusted me. Let's finish this. For he has prepared a city for them. There's your glorification. God has prepared a city for you. He doesn't just want you to have a cardboard box in that city. He wants you to have a luxury suite. He wants you to have a nice condo in that city. Jesus himself, I've gone to prepare a place for you, and when I return, I will gather you to myself, and so you will be with me always. What's he preparing right now? He's preparing the city that God wants to give us, everything that's been promised. These saints in the Old Testament died and didn't receive that promise. Why? Because it's an anticipation waiting. Why? Because we're included. We get to go too. Good for us. God wants you to have it in spades. So here's a question. Are you living in light of the better country? 
Are you living in light of what God wants to give you? Do you believe Him? Is it by faith? Let's pray. Thank You, Father, that Your Word is very clear of how You've worked with saints in the past and that You desire for us maximum glorification. Lord, I pray that You would bring to our minds very fresh opportunities in this next week to trust You when everything else is telling us to follow the world, follow its ways, to deny God, to cut and run, to fall away from the faith. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring these words to the forefront of our understanding that there is a better country, there is a better way that You have supplied abundantly in Your Son. And we are never at a loss for an answer in these situations. Father, we thank You You desire to give us more and more and more. And I don't understand it. And I don't have to rationalize it. But it is the clear teaching of your word. Provoke our hearts where we need it, Father. May we praise you for your graciousness towards us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.